the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Join the conversation now by texting Scott in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Southern California Live, Hour 2 of SoCal Live. Great to be with you. We're together each and every day from 3 to 5, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. I was on vacation uh, last week, if uh, you probably noticed that. Pastor uh, Dudley Rutherford was here, did a great job, pastor of uh, Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. He did a great job. While I was gone, we got to go to Hawaii. Have you been there? I've been to Hawaii twice now. I went there on my honeymoon and uh, got to go there again. And uh, we were we were blessed, actually, with the, with the, the trip, um, both from some friends who helped us out and also uh, mileage uh, that we hardly ever use. And uh, we did it on the cheap, even though we did, uh, it was pretty nice. Anyway, it was a great time for me and my family. So I, I thank you for, um, you know, uh, letting me be gone. I'm glad to be with you uh, today. One of the things we got to do there, something I've always wanted to do and something I wanted to make sure that my kids got to do is we went to the uh, Pearl Harbor Memorials, the USS Arizona Memorial in particular. Have you been there for that? Uh if you've seen that before, the Arizona uh, was sunk on December 7th, 1941. It's still underwater, and they built the memorial over it. So you have to take a boat out there. And um, the visitor center where you go, there's all kinds of information about different battleships that uh, and submarines that went down during World War II and uh, all the lists of people who died on those ships during that war. It was just uh, you know horrific when you go through all of that. I found myself uh, super emotional. I get into those things. You know, when I go to any kind of museum or memorial, uh, I read everything. So sometimes when we go as a family, we take two cars because I'm going to stay and I'm going to read every plaque and everything on the line. That's me. And some of you are probably like that. Some of you are like, no, I get it. And I'm going to move on to the next thing. Um, Can't really take two cars in uh, when you're on vacation. Uh, You could, I guess. But, you know, that's a lot of money. So uh, my family uh, got some shade and an ice cream and... uh, they read they read quite a bit of it, but I read all of it. I found myself very emotional about it and, uh, you know, a very sacred place. And I didn't expect that. I mean, I expected it to be somber and, you know, what it is, but uh, I was pretty emotional about it The when we were on the last public tour of the day. And the tour group, the way they do it is they take a boat over and you get off and you're on the memorial for a little while. And then they bring over the next group. They get off there on one side of the memorial. You line up on the other side and you take the other boat back. Well, the boat that came on after us, they were all U.S. Marines. And uh, they had a special tour guide, you know, walking them through it. And, you know, they were very somber. And it was very moving to me watching them, you know, pay their respects for people who came before them on that day. I knew a guy, a guy in our church who was a Pearl Harbor survivor. So I thought about him a lot. He died a few years ago. And, you know, his stories about that day are wild. You know, he was, uh, I, I'm blanking on the ship he was in. I want to say he was in the Missouri. Uh, but he, he was 
below decks when the bomb started happening. He had to come up and uh, grab a gun that he wasn't uh, particularly uh, used to shooting and start shooting and jumped into the water. There's a whole lot of things to the story. And, um, you know, it's just quite a quite a thing. Well, as he grew older and he's, you know, I knew him obviously as an old man. He's married and he and his wife are just great. Something that they would do is that they would mentor younger couples and, you know, it was particularly, I think, helpful when they would mentor younger couples who were in the military, but anybody, you know, talking to them. And something about them that was remarkable, and I think you need to be a person who becomes very comfortable with the fact that Jesus died for your sins, right, that you are forgiven and all of those things. They had marital struggles that they were very open about. And speaking with younger couples, and in particular, military couples. Military couples have, you know, struggles and difficulties that uh, a lot of other people don't, right? Because you're, you are, you're deployed for certain amounts of time. You often don't have your family with you. You're separate from a long time. And, you know, there's the idea of there's, you know, some sailors have a girl in every port, right? And that whole kind of thing. What he would talk about is, yep, I did. I did have a girl in every port. And his wife would say, yes, he did. And they were kind of very remarkably open about the struggles that they had in marriage with uh, his behaviors in particular while he was in the service and how they had to overcome them and how hurt she was, she would talk about, and how hurt he was that he hurt her. Now, they were ultimately married, you know, a thousand years. They were married, like, for real, I think I think they might have hit 70 years. And you look at this couple and you go, how did you make it? Because I don't think I could. I think that that what they were able to do, how they were able to forgive each other and work through uh, that kind of betrayal and stuff. I think it's rare, but I think it's possible. Obviously, it's possible because they did it. They were very transparent about anything you would ask them about life, anything at all. Um, How transparent do you think we should be with other people about our life? and in particular areas of struggle. As Christians, you know, how transparent do you think we should be? I'm thinking about that because there's, there's a lot of news stories right now where transparency is kind of the, uh, the question, right? Um, how transparent does the White House have to be about the, the documents issue? Uh, CBS News had a breaking report today that talked about the fact that the FBI actually did search the uh, Biden Center at uh, University of Pennsylvania in November. We didn't know that until today. They said this. Well, we have more breaking news now in the Biden documents investigation. Sources tell CBS News the FBI searched the Penn Biden Center offices in mid-November. That came after lawyers for President Biden found about 10 documents marked classified on November 2nd. Those materials were from Mr. Biden's time as vice president. Sources also say the search was conducted with the cooperation of Biden's representatives and the FBI did not seek a search warrant. One of the questions that is being asked to the Biden administration repeatedly is about transparency. And, you know, this is, of course, a an interesting issue because of the FBI uh, raid that happened last summer at Mar-a-Lago. They raided uh, Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago place, and he had classified documents, and there's a lot of back and forth about what he has and whether or not he's entitled to it and different opinions about that. And then uh, Vice President Pence earlier this week said, hey, you know what? Turns out I got some some classified documents. uh, And uh, so that's out there. And, you know, the the president, when you are the, the president, 
um, it certainly raises other questions, and it's very sensitive, right? So some reporters are are asking questions, and what I've found interesting about this, other than the obvious, you know, political, you know, it's it's super interesting that uh, this is going on, right? Politically speaking. Well, well, well. How the turntables. Whenever uh, President Biden, you know, last November or something, I think September, November is saying, uh, oh, how shame on Donald Trump. How could he be so irresponsible? And in the meantime, it's going on with him. He just didn't say. And now it's sort of trickling out. That's what the media doesn't like. The media, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Maybe the media wants to get rid of Biden because he's too old and they don't want him to be the candidate. And, you know, there's all kinds of that. But I think some of it, if you're watching, if you're paying attention, the White House press group is and lots of other reporters are pretty upset that these things keep trickling out. And um, it was uh, the White House communications director, Kate Bedingfield, was on CNN and she was being interviewed by Victor Blackwell this morning. And this is how she answered the question about the FBI searching President Biden's office. That's not something I can comment on from here. That's something you'll need to ask the Justice Department. What I can say is that we have been cooperative and uh, transparent from the outset. We've put out multiple statements from the president's personal attorney describing the process and being clear that the president takes this seriously and that he cooperated and will continue to cooperate with the Justice Department in full. There's that word, transparent. We're being transparent. They keep saying that they're being transparent. And um, I thought this was pretty interesting. His uh, response to her, this is what he began to uh, to push back on that. And, you know, the other thing... That's her. I'm sorry, because she what she does is she goes into talking about, hey, the polls say we're okay. I don't I don't know that people are paying that much attention. And I know that a lot of people don't really care, you know, about this. I mean, unless we find out what's on the paper, probably nothing comes of this for any of these guys. Right. Maybe somebody ought to be. I know Congress is looking at uh, maybe we ought to pay more attention to who has the classified documents and what they can do with it. Yeah, they need to do that, obviously. Uh, I don't know that unless they have something that is, you know, it turns out very vital or something that is covering their own behind for something uh, and some kind of cover up, then this issue is going to be nothing for any of them ultimately. And now it's not even a political issue because it's on both sides. But this is the the pushback that the White House is getting from many reporters. And in this case, it's Victor Blackwell. So, Kate, you're claiming transparency, but I'm bringing this to you. You aren't bringing it to me. This happened in mid-November. If you are indeed being transparent, why the continued trickle of disclosure around these classified documents? We have released multiple statements from the White House and President Biden's personal attorney has released multiple statements over the last month uh, walking through the process and agreeing to be fully, fully cooperative with the Justice Department. This is a, uh, a process that plays out. We are responsive to the Justice Department's requests. We have been clear from the outset that the president will cooperate with every request the Justice Department has. And we've put out multiple statements describing that process. So she says the same thing that she said at first, actually. That's how she answers her question, his question. When it comes to transparency, what is right? Like how much, you know, in our relationship? So in this case, we have this national issue. You know, what does the president actually owe us? Uh, The White House is going to say we're cooperating with the authorities. Um, but they're staying close to a script. Uh, mostly the president has just read, you know, from uh, a piece of paper that a lawyer has presented for him. There's an awful lot of lawyers involved in all of this. The White House is not saying. The press is getting kind of upset about it um, because it's not all coming out at once. When this when this hit the news, why didn't they just come out with all of it? Why didn't they come out with just a timeline? Here's the timeline. 
in November, uh, these documents were, were found. The FBI came in and looked through the office. Our lawyers went in and did this. I mean, then, then they came to the house, and there was that nice Corvette. And next to that really cool Corvette was this box of classified documents, turns out. Then it turns – and we're just hearing one then, – then it turns out the Department of Justice went into the house and found more. You know, why, why not just put it all out there? I think that's one of the big questions is why are you holding all of this back? If there's nothing terribly wrong at the end of the day, like it's embarrassing because of what you said about President Trump's version a couple months ago, but at the end of the day, come on, unless you are in trouble, you know, serious trouble because of what's on those documents, then why not just put it out there? Yep, we screwed up. Yep, we did this. Yep, there's not good enough controls, and I'm going to, uh, you know, President could easily just, hey, apologize for the sloppiness of all of this and uh, say these things need to be fixed and we're going to have an independent commission fix how class you know there's there's things you could do to just get this behind you rather than let it trickle out um and it seems like when you're not the accusation against the president is that he's hiding something right or that there's there's another shoe that's going to drop here otherwise you would do just what i said so anyways we're thinking about this transparency i'm seeing this in in lots of other issues um, in the police beating that happened in Memphis. Um, one of the issues is, was this handled properly properly by the police department? Um, did they handle this in a way that's better than previous times? And, you know, I think it's possible that they did. Um, and uh, there's a legal analyst who... Uh, uh, he was interviewed about this, and here's what he had to say. Now, the firing of the officers, quite often that's dictated by collective bargaining agreements. In many jurisdictions, they may not be able to be fired right away. Here, uh, Memphis had the latitude to do so. They conducted their investigation, and they controlled the narrative. So what happens quite often, you release a video, you lose control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Folks wonder why there's no arrest, what are you going mm-hmm. to do, and so forth. So they were able to control the narrative. I think that's very helpful. And they inform the public, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see something really horrible. His name is Kirk Burkhalter, and he's been working for uh, police reform in these situations, and in particular how things get communicated to the community when these things happen. And he felt like there's always issues, but that they did a pretty good job in that the officers were, it was obvious that they needed to be fired and also charged and all that was done. And then they let the video out and they told everybody, hey, this video is really bad. So they kind of warned people. And that probably did uh, help um, what is a, a very painful, difficult situation. And what I think is notable about that, if that's the right way to look at it, is that when we're more transparent, um, not recklessly so, right? They could have just put out the video and everything without an explanation, and I think there would have been a lot more trouble. Uh, you have to be strategic about it. But I think when we're when we are transparent and just sort of upfront about things, I think things go better, even if it's painful, even if it's hard, even if it's wicked. And I thought about that for us as believers just in our relationships with each other. Do we as Christians hide too much about our sin? Or are we transparent about it? I don't mean, you know, getting up in front of everybody and sort of being forced to confess all of your sins, you know, to everybody. I know there's some groups that do that. And, uh, you know, I think that can be done in a very poor way. But... What do you think about this? 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557 is the number. I'm Scott Furrow. This is Southern California Live. Uh, 
are we not transparent enough? How do we be transparent in a in a useful way? I think that like my friend who was the Pearl Harbor survivor, who is very transparent about some stuff that uh, I think most people would take to their grave and never tell anybody. Um, they found so much redemption and value in that, and they helped so many people. It's amazing how many people they were able to help because they were just open about their sins, but also open about, if you're just listening, it was a Pearl Harbor survivor that I knew who was very open about uh, adulteries that he had done while he was in the service, and he and his wife, and she was very open about the hurt and the pain and the difficulty of all of that. And uh, they had a great ministry, though, to couples because they were able to share their stuff, their stuff that they were also able to say, we know that we are forgiven by our Creator. See, that's where your, your hope is. You know, a lot of this news and a lot of the stuff that we're seeing everywhere, it doesn't leave you with a lot of hope, right? It it leaves you in a place where um, you're you're either just sad or maybe you start to build a wall around yourself and say, I don't want people to know. Um, and I think there's a place for privacy. And I think certain things need to stay within married couples or they need to stay within maybe your small group or a small group of people, your pastor, your counselor, whatever. But there's a point where we have stuff that we've gone through in our life where I do think we need to share it. And I think that there are, we ultimately do a disservice when we aren't comfortable enough to share how we struggle or bad things that we've gone through or difficult things we've gone through, even if it wasn't our fault. There are people out there who I think are starving for truth and starving for a way when Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, there is so much to that because when you, you know, obviously it is true and each one of those things, he is the way, not a way, he's the way. He is the truth. Everything comes back to Jesus and he is the life. Life is good when you know Jesus, when you truly know him. And what I mean is not not just that you go to church or that you're religious or that you have some sort of feeling about that, but when you truly know Jesus, when you know that he is your friend, when you know that he's present, when you know that you're saved, how do I know I'm saved? Well, you know what? I think you do. I think that uh, it, it isn't that you may not have moments of doubt. I think that we all do, and we all have to walk through that. But I think for believers who are maturing, I really believe that you can see how God is working in your life. I really believe that. And I think that when you get there, you know, we live in this culture where we're so, uh, we, we compare ourselves to each other all the time, right? That's, that's one of the troubles with social media is that you, you get depressed because it looks like somebody else has um, a better life than you. We didn't post that many pictures of uh, our Hawaii trip, kind of for that reason, because people, people see other people's Hawaii trips and they get jealous or they feel like, well, I don't have that and this and that. And it's because you only post the, the happy moments on your Hawaii trip. Like we posted, I posted just a couple of scenic things for all anybody knew is I could have just grabbed those off the internet. That didn't even mean I was there. And I only posted them to close friends. I have my social media, you know, in such a way that not everybody sees everything because I know, I don't know some of the people who are on there on my social media. Um, I didn't take a picture of the cockroach that ran across our table once when we went out to eat. I would, did not take a picture. You know, the cockroaches all over Hawaii. If you're there long enough, uh, it's, it's a big problem. It's a major problem. Did you not? Nobody posts those pictures out there, but you should know that that's a part of your Hawaiian vacation. Uh, I didn't post any pictures of my son throwing up and getting airsick on the way home. 
I did learn that they replace the cushion you sit on, though, when that happens. I didn't know that before. That they come out with a much bigger bag, which you need, because that tiny little bag they give you, uh, it's not enough, turns out. And I learned all kinds of things on this trip I wish I didn't know. I didn't take any pictures of that. You know, I'm telling you now because, you know, we're friends uh, and we can sort of laugh about it now and he's doing better. And uh, they do, though. They they bring out a cushion for you and then they put these little these little because there were other people throwing up on this plane. Right. I thought this could be because the turbulence was bad. Right. The turbulence was designed by the same people who designed that extra roller coaster at Magic Mountain. It was crazy. You know, I even shut the window because the wing was flapping so big outside. I'm like, ah, I don't need to see that. Uh, and turbulence doesn't really bother me. And I was sort of <laughs> enjoying it for a while till the throw up started to happen. But other people are throwing up. They have these little bags that they pop and they stick behind your chair that emanate some sort of smell that prevents other people from smelling it. It's a, it's a whole different experience. Maybe you didn't tune in today to learn that. But, you know, that's, it's not something you're putting on your social media. You're not doing that. Um. But, you know, that kind of understanding actually helps people get through it. The people around us appreciated those little bags. They appreciated all the work that the flight attendants did to help clean up the mess and all of this. And so did my son. And so did I. Our transparency is something that other people need to see. You have to be the judge, I think, on what's appropriate and what isn't, on how to do it and what the timing is of it. But there is good timing and there is an appropriateness to sharing with other people the struggles that you've had, where it becomes no longer something that's embarrassing. Instead, it becomes something that got nailed to the cross and is now redeemed, and you can use it to love others. I think we need more of that. I think that's one of the problems that we have as Christians. Sometimes we want to set ourselves uh, apart in a holiness that says that we are sinless instead of a holiness that says we've been redeemed by the Lamb, that my sins have been washed away, that my sins, although they exist, I've been forgiven. And some of those sins I have repented of fully, and I don't do them anymore. Some of them I'm struggling with. Um, But part of that struggle is to be able to say, number one, it is sin. Number two, I've been forgiven. Number three, uh, maybe we can help each other so that we do better in following the Lord, which, by the way, gives you a better life and all of that. All right, just some thoughts today about transparency and asking you that question, are you transparent? When we come back, uh, I want to share some things about what uh, some other things that we should know uh, about our faith. How well, if you're a Christian, how well do you know Jewish, what Jewish people believe? How well do you know, you know, other than just what maybe you've heard in Sunday school or things that you've assumed, but somebody who's not a Christian but who believes that the, the, the Old Testament is true, that there is a God— that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God, and that the Exodus is real, that the Torah is valuable. Do you really understand what what people believe, maybe who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and why? Uh, There's an opportunity coming up for you that uh, we're a part of from KKLA. It's called Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. It's with Eric Metaxas and our own Dennis Prager, and I'm going to tell you more about that and give you some samples when you come back. I think you're going to learn something really good. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll be back as the Tuesday edition continues. Stay tuned. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Text Scott right now in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Do you think it could be possible that Jesus could be the Messiah of the Jews, is it possible? It's, it is possible. What but about? I, but but that doesn't it doesn't help. The the 
Let me explain something. Wait a minute. This you're happens. saying it could be possible. Yes, of course it's well, okay, possible. Okay, what about Menachem Schneerson? Could he be the Messiah? Yes, that's possible. Okay. That's, yes. All right. I, I, I am not fixated on who was the Messiah. It has never been a, a, big, a big issue for me. And by the way, it's not, a, it's not been a big issue for most Jews in any event. Because the, the, the issue, if the only claim for Jesus that Christians made was he was the Messiah there would not have been a separated religion. You literally would have had Jews and Jews for Jesus. That's all it would have been. It would not have become a Gentile religion, which is what ultimately it became with a you know, smattering of Jews, obviously. Welcome back to Southern California Live. That was Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas, and they're discussing the differences between Jewish people and Gentile people and what they believe, and it's an amazing discussion. We're going to have that discussion live on Monday, February 20th, and uh, I get to moderate between these two fine gentlemen, and we're going to, it's called Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. And I want you to come. I think this will be something that is very, very valuable for all of us as as believers, or maybe you're listening and you're Jewish, or maybe you're listening and you're agnostic or you're in between, you don't know what you are. Uh, have you ever wondered what's, what's the difference? I mean, both groups have the Old Testament. Um, both groups claim that it's the Word of God. Both groups claim that they worship the living God, one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why is there two different religions? two different ways of thinking about the world. And I think that's really important. It's important because it will help you understand your Bible. And I think you need to understand your Bible. Right now, if you're doing one of those Bible reading plans, you're, you've, if you did one where you're reading straight through, well, then you're, you're in the Old Testament right now, and you're kind of buried with it, right? I mean, you're, you're into some, if you've gotten through uh, Exodus, now you're into some difficulty, Right. Genesis, Exodus, pretty cool. Lots of stories and some cool stuff. Then you got Leviticus and Numbers, and uh, it's brutal unless you get it. And then it becomes incredibly eye-opening. It's worth the study. Don't give up. Just read through it. Go back and study it later. Deuteronomy, you know, gets pretty good. Back to the story. Then you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth's amazing. Fantastic story. And uh, then you got First and Second Chronicles and Kings, and you've got uh, some other good stuff. And then you get sort of beat down into the prophets eventually, but all of it matters. And you will understand all of that more if you understand uh, a Jewish perspective on a lot of it. And if you have people in your relational world who are Jewish, and I'm speaking to you if you're a Christian, it's going to help you know where they're coming from. Because sometimes, and I'll be honest, as Christians, you know, we get, we're naive sometimes about, and I think everybody's naive, right? Everybody's naive about what other people believe. You could be Jewish and very naive about what Christians actually believe. And I think we we live in a world today where we don't educate people as a culture accurately about other people's beliefs. Does that make sense to you? I think that 50 years from ago, most people would have been able to explain, most people in our country would have been able to explain what a Christian is. They would have been able to say, well, a Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again on the third day, and whoever believes in him would have eternal life. I think even if you didn't go to church or if you were another faith, you probably understood that. Today, a lot of people have no idea what Christians believe. Some people legitimately believe Christians are like conservative politically Republicans or something, right? And that that's the extent of what Christianity is or a set of moral beliefs, or lots of people might think that about Jewish people, that it's simply um, not related even, that people don't understand that. 
This is something that's really, really important. So here's the details. Uh, February 20th, so it's coming up. That's President's Day, by the way, which means the traffic will be light, so you can make it. Okay, it starts at 7 p.m. Um, there's a VIP reception if you want to meet Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas, uh, 5 p.m., and there's tickets for both of those. And what you need to do is go to kkla.com, kkla.com, click the banner that's right there on the front for Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. That's the event. And I'll be moderating this event, so you'll get a chance to uh, say hello, and I look forward to meeting you there. It's Monday, February 20th, 7 p.m. It's at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene. So a very central location. You'll be able to get there um, quickly on uh, that Monday, and I really want to encourage you to go and to bring a friend. And and you know what? If you've got a—this uh, is the type of event where I think it's a good event to bring your Christian friend or your non-Christian friend. Right, you've got two people on the stage. Dennis Prager, of course, who is longtime Salem talk show host. He's on our sister station uh, in L.A. and San Diego. The answer, and you know, he's on every day. Eric Metaxas is an author, and uh, he is somebody who speaks regularly um, uh, all over the place. Probably his best book or his best known book is a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, that is brilliant about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, his teaching right before the Second World War and where the German church was. He's written a book recently called Letter to the American Church, where he expresses his concern that we're in a similar place right now, where the church needs to be more active um, in what's going on. Otherwise, we're going to lose the freedoms, you know, maybe not in a world war in the same way, but in another way, it could be really rough. Um, so I would encourage you to come and uh, listen to those two guys. They're going to, they're also, they know each other, they're friends. So it's not a uh, adversarial thing. It's not a debate. This is something that is informational and fun. We're going to have a good time. Uh, those two guys like to laugh. They like each other. And, uh, I like to laugh. We're going to have a good time. I, and you can bring your non-Christian friend, your, your friend who maybe listens to this show or listens to Dennis Prager or is Red Bonhoeffer, who's curious this is a great way for you to get to know your friend. And here's a, here's a strategy for it. This is, you know, part of what we should be doing, I think, as Christians in the call of discipleship, which we're called to do, is have spiritual conversations with the people who are in our life, coworkers or classmates. You know, the people that you should invite are the people who are in your life. Not like random, you can invite random people, but they're probably not going to go. But the person that sits across from you in your office, the person who hears this show because your radio is on the, in the carpool or your radio is on in the office, the person who you hear listening to Dennis Prager in the morning, invite that person, that person who you're close enough, your, your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers, we call that group your Oikos. This is a great event because not only do you come and you learn stuff, you're going to learn stuff, the person you bring is going to learn stuff. But then I think the discipleship part of it is you get to have a conversation with that person you brought afterward, a spiritual conversation, and one that's not corny, like one that's pretty serious, because you're going to hear some some differences, some differences in point of view um, about Jesus, about the way the Bible would be interpreted, about how Jews and Gentiles, and really Jews and Christians, see the, the, the Bible differently. But that's something that is it's sort of hanging there in the culture. Like people know this, but they don't really know this. This gives you something really solid to talk about. So can I invite you to that? Ask a Jew, ask a Gentile. It's February 20th. You can get tickets by going to kkla.com. Click on the Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile banner, and uh, it'll take you to the page where you can get tickets and give you some description on it. It starts at 7 o'clock. You need to be there by 645. There's also a special VIP reception that begins at 5 o'clock, and uh, you'll get a chance to... Uh, 
meet uh, everybody, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. I'll be there, and uh, we're going to have a great time with us. Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile, February 20th, 2023, 7 p.m., Pasadena, First Church of the Nazarene. And I really want to encourage you to go, kkla.com. All right. Um, before the break, we were talking about uh, transparency and, uh, you know, w- what is important about that and being transparent. You know, that's something about the Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile thing, too. I think it's going to be great. You're going to hear different opinions in, in a way that is polite, in a way that is informative, in a way that is fun, and in a way that is transparent. And I think in a very healthy way where we're in an environment where people can just say, nope, this is what I believe, and here's why I believe it. And I think all of us are called to do that. There's so many uh, things that you're going to get from that. All right, 888-528-2557 is the number if you want to join the conversation, 888-528-2557. Let's go to Trent in Compton. Welcome to Southern California Live. Yeah, hi. Hi, Trent. Hi. Uh, I was just calling in uh, about the topic of transparency. Um, I just wanted to give my insight that, uh, you know, I I have went on my Instagram and I, I've uh, shared my face and I tried to share my faith and break things down apologetically, you know, and um, it's hard for me to understand of just giving the, the concept of, uh, you know, Jesus loves you and that transforming someone's life. But, you know, it, walking that line of being apologetic and explaining pe- your morality to people is, uh, I don't know, it, it pushed people away from me in my life. And um, I don't know, I just struggle with that. And, and I, I'm just curious to, to your thoughts of uh, how we could be bold on, on uh, these social media platforms, because it is also scary. You know, you never know where all your videos are going and how yeah. uh, that can affect you in the future. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. yeah, that's I, What's your thoughts on that? You know, Trent, um, when you when you uh, you said that it hurt you um, or it separated you a little bit from relationships, was it relationships with people that you know really well, or was it just people that you kind of sort of know on your social media who decided not to follow you anymore or who engaged with you maybe well, negatively, but not necessarily people that you hang out with? Well, it was actually with people that I hang out with. I feel as though um, people substitute real life into their social media and what they follow and the they could easily subtract me from their life and hang it out and just pick up more uh, social media and, and what, what they seek in pleasure. You know what I mean? So I kind of got brushed to the side by my real life friends. And uh, that was just the result of me sharing the gospel and, and uh, conviction and stuff like that. You know, it's hard to, to convict people when they know you in real life and they also know that you sin. You know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, I do. I'm sorry that that happened to you that way, you know. And I think, um, and and I think I do have some things I can share with you. Uh, can you hold on through the break, or if you want, you can hang up, and I'll just uh, address it when we come back. Uh, yeah, I'll hang up. Okay, Trent. Thanks for your call. All right, this Thank is you. Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, and I will get back and I'll answer Trent's question. I got some thoughts about this, you know, about the transparency in our faith and uh, how it may be received by people that we we know. Uh, And I'll tell you about that when we come back. 888-528-2557, Southern California Live. I'll be back as the Tuesday edition continues. Stay tuned. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Join the conversation now by texting Scott in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live. Scott Furrow with you. Number is 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. Talking about transparency and uh, what's the right way to be transparent. Uh, 
particularly when it comes to sharing your faith or sharing about yourself uh, for spiritual reasons. And uh, before the break, Trent called, and he told us that uh, he had been pretty transparent about sharing the gospel on his social media, and uh, he's lost some relationships because of that. And not just sort of random people who follow you sometimes on social media, but people that he knows, actually. And uh, he wanted to know what I thought about that. And here's here's some thoughts about this. I think this is really important. Maybe you've got a thought about that, too. You can give me a call and join the conversation. Uh, give Trent some input. 888-528-2557 is the number. 888-528-2557. You know, Trent, to what I would say, first of all, social media is a terrible medium for serious conversation. It just is. It's it's a weird thing, social media, because it can be it can be something that draws you closer to people, but it's also something that can draw you further apart. Um, it's something that is in in many ways. We were talking earlier in the show about how people don't post their uh, you know they post their great vacation pictures, but they don't they don't you know they have a smiling family on the beach in Hawaii, um, but they don't post a video of your son yelling at you and your boys b- punching each other and the roaches crawling over your dinner table and other stuff that you might have experienced on that same vacation. Um, it's Social media is a way that you, you kind of um, – it's just a bad place, I think, to communicate. Here's what I think you should do. Uh, with that. I think it's fine to put your faith out there in your social media, to post Bible verses, to pray for people, to to be Christian out there. I think that matters. But it's not always the best place. Now, there are exceptions for sure. Not always the best place to try to convince people to the gospel, particularly if they're going to call you a hypocrite or other things. Um, discipleship is something that's very relational. Jesus asks us to make disciples. Okay, there's something inherent about this, and I think we miss this a lot of times in the church. We kind of destroy the word discipleship. I was reading a Christian book one time about a... Um, it was about discipleship, and I, it was by an author that I respect and I like, but his definition from the outset of what discipleship was was more about the process of going to church and being a part of the church organization and going on Sunday and Bible study and all this stuff. And he called that discipleship. And I thought, actually, no, that's part of it. You need to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a part of it and it strengthens you. But discipleship is the relationship you have with relatively small number of people most of the time. The people that God has placed in your, your world, all right, in in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And you might think that means you just got to, like, it's going to give light to everyone in the world. It doesn't say that. It says everyone in the house. The word house is a limited word, okay? And it doesn't mean that you don't put your faith out there in the world or that you don't have encounters with people or suddenly you put on your faith or if you're on TV for some reason, um, then you, um, uh, you know, you don't share your faith in that, in that sense. But here's, here's the key to it. The word house, there is a old word called oikos. To you, that might be a yogurt, but I use that word a lot. And I know that some, maybe some of your churches use this word oikos a lot, 
or ECOS or whatever you want to pronounce it. Oikos, I think, is the official academic pronunciation. But if you're speaking modern Greek, I think it's ECOS or something. It's a root word for ecosphere, also economy and, and different things. Your oikos is the group of people that are in your relational world. So in the New Testament, the people hearing this would have been highly influenced by Greek thinkers. Uh, Aristotle would be one of those people. And Aristotle talks a lot about household. Usually the word in the New Testament, when you see it, house means household, and it means the people that you do life with. Now, you might think in America, you know, your household is eight, is your, your mom and dad and two and a half kids. But your household, from a biblical standpoint, is your the people that you go to work with, because back then you would have lived with those people most of the time or near them. Um, your boss, your coworkers, or the people who work for you. Your siblings, your spouse, your probably close family members, but also your neighbors, the people that you go to school with if you, if you were in some kind of school or however the education was being done, but the people that you do life with. Uh, that's your oikos. That's a small number of people, relatively speaking. It's a, it's a group of people, though, that's manageable if you're going to do discipleship. And when Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before, uh, when Jesus says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house, the word is oikos, they would have understood that to mean everyone who's in the vicinity of that light, meaning that the people who are in that household, okay, that's what the word is, the people that you know, the people who know you well enough to know if you actually believe what you're saying. See, some people I think are called your Billy Grahams and, you know, or people who are just lesser, but have the gift of evangelism. I think there's a, I think we're all called to share the gospel, but some people have a special gift where they can share the gospel and people will come and people will listen, right? If you go to a harvest crusade, right? There's thousands of people there and a lot of them are church people, but they're bringing some people. And a lot of those people who got in the field, a lot of them are out there because they're walking with their friends, but there are people who get saved there. You know, if I did that same thing, I'm not sure I would be able to do what Greg Laurie does. Okay, with that. I think some people have the a gift of evangelism, but for most of us, I think maybe we don't have that gift, but we do have people in our life, and these are the people who we influence. These are the people who see our life. It's the it's the importance of our our testimony, right? So if we put our faith out there, but the people who you know people who don't know us may not know any different, but the people who know us, they know whether or not we're a hypocrite, and they're the ones we've got to address our sins with. That's part of the transparency. Is that you know, when I'm sharing my faith with somebody who knows me well, they also know what my shortcomings are. They know what my sins are. And I need to address that with them. I need to be transparent them with them and say, you know what? Um, you know, I can be lazy or I can be angry or, or I drink too much or I, I do these things, right? And you say that because they already know that. And you have to acknowledge it and you have to acknowledge this is why I need, I need a savior. And it it humbles you to the point where maybe they're going to listen to the rest of the message. See what I'm saying? A, uh, let me take a call here real quick, and then I'll, I'll finish up here. David in Culver City, welcome to Southern California Live. Scott, welcome back. I'm glad you're back on the radio. Thank you, David. I hope you had a good vacation. I did. It was I great. I only got a minute or so here, David. So what are your thoughts? Okay, guys, real quickly, I agree with you. I think you have to be careful about evangelizing. A lot of a lot of people that evangelize shouldn't be evangelizing. What they say is intellectually flabby. Uh, they're too supersessionist. They make it sound like everybody else's beliefs. You know, they don't acknowledge other people's beliefs and start from there. So I think it's very tricky to evangelize, and I, I agree with you. I think that does is off-putting to a lot of people. So I'm just supporting what you're saying. All right, David. Thank you, and it is good to hear from you. Glad to be back, David. Thanks for listening. 
you know, I, you know, Paul, when he was uh, speaking to the Romans, and he has the gift of evangelism, obviously, but he started with where they were, right? He went to the uh, to Mars Hill, and he acknowledged the, the monument that they had to the unknown gods. They have all these monuments to all these gods who they've heard of, and then maybe we've missed somebody, so here's the unknown god. And he was able to relate that way, right? I think that's important if you're doing that. It's much easier to do that with the people that you know. Some people are called to go places and evangelize. Others of us, we're called to demonstrate and announce the gospel to the people that God has placed in our life. And what I would say to you, uh, Trent, and everybody is this. The people that God has put in your life are there on purpose. Uh, they They are there on purpose for you to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. That You might share that same reason with the masses, and they might ignore you, or they may not understand you, they may not care. But the people who are in your oikos, the people that you work with, or go to school with, or live across from, those people are interested, at least in what you believe. Some of those people are wondering why you don't share your faith with them. And those are the people who really know whether you believe the stuff that you say, right? That Those are the people. That's why the social media thing doesn't work too well, is because... I don't know. I have thousands of people on my social media. How many of them do I know? You know, I know most of them I know by name. I know a lot of you go to my social media and add you, and it's great, and I kind of can see who you are. But when you have that many people, most of you I don't know personally, right? Um, what are the, what's the number of people that you know personally well enough to really share your faith and really be transparent with? Uh, somebody did a survey one time. It's about 8 to 15 people. If you're kind of introverted, maybe it's eight. If you're, it could be less. If you're extroverted, maybe it's 15. Could be a little more, but if you're getting more than that, you're probably, you probably don't really have that many close relationships. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't share your faith with those people or that you're not ready to, but there's a certain number of people who are in your life right now. God wants you to love them, to pray for them every day, to ask God, God, use me in their life however you want to use me to invest in them, to get to know them, to take them to Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile with Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas on February 20th, which you can go get tickets for at kkla.com, to go to that with them and then go out for dessert afterward or the next day and say, what do you think? And develop that. There's a, there's an investment that happens with people you know. You can't do that with people you don't know. They won't go with you. But the people you know, that's where discipleship happens. And let me tell you something, that when you invest spiritually in the people who are already in your life, they might reject you. That's the fear, right? Like, like Trent said, they might reject you, and it hurts. Jesus said they're going to do that. But you also might lead them to Christ. And when that happens, you're going to realize why you were born. And it's invigorating. See, that's the Christian life. And then they go to church with you, and then they go to Bible study with you, and then they ask questions, and you see them grow. It's amazing. Figure out who the people are in your life. Minister to those people. Be transparent with them and love them. I'm totally out of time, but we'll talk about this again. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll see you again tomorrow from 3 to 5. God bless you. See you then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.